Hello and welcome to the JS Bach Files, episode 47. I'm Terence O'Grady and today we're going to talk about a couple of solo cantatas for alto. And we're going to begin with BWV 35, Geist und Ziela wird verwirrt, Spirit and Soul Become Confused. It's actually the third of four for solo alto and the second of the third yearly cycle of cantatas. The librettist here is Georg Christian Lems, whom we've encountered before, and a favorite poet of Bach's in this third cycle. It was composed for the twelfth Sunday after Trinity with the Gospel of the Day from Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through 37, regarding Jesus' curing of the deaf man. The cantata begins not with an opening chorus, but with an ambitious and effective sinfonia in the form of a concerto movement. It's widely assumed that this cantata is based, to a substantial extent, on a lost oboe, violin, or keyboard concerto. Certainly, the two instrumental movements, which began each half of the cantata, show signs of this, and possibly even the first aria. In regard to the first movement, I'm going to start by focusing on the opening bars of the first ritornello. We'll look initially at the top voice, shared by first oboe and first violins. The opening motive, although rather distinctive, is really no more than a rhythmically interesting arpeggio pattern based on first the tonic D minor triad, starting with the pickup note on the fifth of the chord and leaping up to the tonic note, and then in the second half of the measure, a pattern outlining the leading tone diminished seventh chord, which is often thought of as a weaker substitute for the dominant chord, but one with distinctive qualities of its own. In the second measure, the first oboe repeats the pattern in a variant that matches up with the changing harmonic context, a dominant seventh for the first half of the measure and a tonic D minor chord for the second. Here's a simplified example of just the first oboe part, first two bars. The second oboe, doubled by second violins, provides an energetic counterpoint to the top voice, notable for its octave leap, its tie into a strong beat, which creates a brief suspension with the top voice, and most obviously, its echoing on the third beat of the measure of a variant of the first oboe's motive from the first beat of the measure, with the result being that we hear the opening motive, or a variant of it, three times in a row, the second and third times a step higher. Here's another example, this time with both oboe parts. The third melodic voice, played by an alto oboe and doubled by the viola, I'm going to use the viola sample for it this time, starts out by doubling the second oboe's pickup notes in thirds, but then moves on to invert the first oboe's motive for the first half of the measure before linking up with the second oboe in sixth in the second half of the measure. Here's another simplified example, this time all three parts, again measures one and two. All of this sounds more complicated than it is, of course, and I haven't even considered the continuo bass line yet, which provides an anchor to all of the activity going on above it but it does show how integrated Bach's textures often are, even when the voices seem to be so independent. And this level of integration continues beyond just the first two bars. 
In measures three and four, Bach returns to his opening motive in the top voice, but in inversion, and then repeats it twice more, each time down a step, until he breaks into a series of paired sixteenth notes, mostly outlining triads, often sequentially. The lower voices continue to quote motives from the first two bars until they, too, break into repeated sixteenth notes, with sequences abounding there as well, primarily ascending. Here is the entire opening ritonello breaking off when the orchestra drops down to piano and the soloist begins its first solo section. The first solo section is, as you might expect since it's based on an oboe or violin or keyboard concerto, quite a busy one. It begins in D minor and quotes a variant of the opening motive of the ritonello twice in the opening measure, before moving to a flow of sixteenth notes. But it's something of a false start, because after just two bars, the orchestra leaps back in, forte, with the first two bars of the ritonello. But now the soloist does take control, coming in halfway through the second measure, on the dominant chord, with a long undulating line in sixteenth notes. The orchestra tries to jump back in with fragments of the opening motive, but soon surrenders to the soloist, who takes full control, sequencing its way through repeated patterns of sixteenth notes while supplying its own continual bass line, as it quotes the familiar rhythm from the opening motive, an eighth followed by two sixteenth notes. Here is the first solo section, which manages to modulate to F major, where the next ritonello begins. I'm not going to take us through every ritonello and solo section here. Suffice it to say that familiar motives from the opening ritonello continue to play an important role, although often reinvented in unpredictable ways. And of course, we encounter different keys along the way, which provide different oral lens through which we experience those motives. And of course, the relationship between the orchestra and soloist fluctuates. Some of the most effective tension-building passages for the soloist are those cadenza-like passages accompanied not by motivic interjections from the orchestra, but by sustained, slowly evolving chords. In short, it is another excellent example of an incredible diversity of melodic, harmonic, and textural effects made completely coherent by the motivic integrity of the movement. The text for the first aria in 6A time and beginning in A minor is, in translation, Soul and spirit are thrown into confusion when they consider you, my God, 
for the miracles that they know and that the people talk of with shouts of joy have made them deaf and dumb. By the way, I am, as usual, employing the very sound translations of Francis Brown from the Bacchantadas.com website. This first aria has been described as a lilting Siciliano by Simon Crouch, and with good reason, not simply because of its meter, but also because of its repeated use of dotted rhythms in the familiar dotted eighth, sixteenth, eighth pattern. But it's a troubled Siciliano, abounding with melodic hesitations and sometimes uncomfortable harmonies, all of which can be heard in the opening orchestral ritornello. What can also be heard in the opening ritornello is, beginning in the fifth measure, a very elaborate figuration-based organ part, mostly proceeding in 30-second notes with longer notes occasionally tied over. It does sound very much like a solo keyboard part in the slow movement of a concerto, but it is not, of course, the primary melodic material. That is assigned to the oboes and strings in three independent but carefully coordinated parts, just as in the opening instrumental movement. When the alto does enter with the first two lines of text, it does so with a more active, embellished version of the melody introduced in the ritornello. But it is no less disjointed, perhaps more so, and that, of course, makes it a perfect embodiment of the notion of soul and spirit thrown into confusion. When the line is repeated after four measures, there is much less confusion. The melody settles into a more consistent and conventional sequential pattern as we move away from A minor, although the oboes and strings continue their large leaps in the accompaniment, as does the accompanying organ part, which had begun with pause-filling answers initially, but now returns to its torrent of 30-second notes. Here is the first vocal section, ending with the first return of the ritornello now in E minor. After the slightly modified ritornello, the alto returns, initially in E minor, but the tonality soon heads toward D minor. The text is the same, and the melody begins as before, but floats away into more melismatic patterns for the next three bars. But when the first line is repeated, soul and spirit are thrown into confusion, 
and we return to A minor, Bach repeats the original melodic statement. This is followed by a new idea, where the alto sustains longer notes against the increasingly florid organ obbligato. But this is a da capo aria, and we're going to skip to the middle section, with the text, For the miracles that they know, and that the people talk of with shouts of joy, have made them deaf and dumb. Here, the melody is neither hesitant nor confused, and the harmony devoid of eccentricity or painful dissonance. In fact, we began in F major, where the text speaks confidently of the miracles that they know. We do head quickly to D minor, but as soon as we encounter the words shouts of joy, we catch a glimpse of the sort of virtuoso passage for the alto that we might not have expected, although at this point it's only a pair of quick 30-second note descending scale passages separated by an ascending leap. Meanwhile, as you might well expect, the organ line continues with its 30-second note mostly scale-wise patterns in the accompaniment. After a brief return of the instrumental ritornello, the first line of text, for the miracles that they know, is repeated again, calling on fairly modest vocal resources. But then, when we again encounter the reference to shouts of joy, we hear from the alto a dazzling display of repeated fanfare-like triadic arpeggios, which settle down dramatically at the end of the section as we come to the text have made them deaf and dumb. This is expressed by the alto moving steadily down into the lower part of his range, although the organ solo, as usual, keeps up its torrent of accompanying scale runs almost to the last second. After this relatively quiet conclusion, the da capo takes us back to the first part of the aria. There's little question that the technical demands made on the alto in this aria are formidable, and a number of people have speculated that Bach may have had a particular singer in mind when he wrote the part, perhaps a visiting singer not always available to Bach. Could it possibly have been composed for a mature male falsettist rather than an unchanged boy's voice? The jury remains out on these questions. In the recitative that follows, 
the librettist Lems deals directly with the gospel text as was his custom. The text states in his final lines, To the deaf you give hearing, to the dumb you give back their speech. Indeed, what is more, with a word you open the eyelids of the blind. These, these are your miracles, and their power even the choir of angels cannot sufficiently express. The aria that follows, accompanied by the organ only, states, God has done all things well. His love, his faithfulness are new every day for us. When anxiety and care press upon us, he has sent rich consolation, for he watches over us day after day. God has done all things well. The aria in F major and common time takes a triumphant tone from the opening notes of the instrumental ritornello, which evokes the fanfare-like motives from the middle section of the first aria, before breaking into a standard figuration pattern. The alto's melody line begins with a descending tonic triad, then moves immediately to a long ascending melisma on all, as in all things. It continues in much the same ebullient manner as it moves on to his love, his faithfulness are new every day for us, with first faithfulness and later day provided with substantial melismas. After the organ ritonello returns in C major, the alto then moves on to the next part of the text. When anxiety and care press upon us, he has sent rich consolation. This, not surprisingly, takes a different tone. The alto begins in C major with a more measured and somewhat less florid melody, but at the first reference to cares pressing upon us, moves quickly and a little abruptly to D minor where a flowing melisma returns at the reference to rich consolation. With a second reference to anxiety and cares, we encounter new motives, more rhythmically disjointed, before finally coming to a close in D minor. Meanwhile, the organ accompaniment has remained florid almost throughout, returning to simpler patterns only when the alto engages in more active melismas of its own.
My excerpt ran a little bit into the next organ ritonello, which continues in D minor with repeated figuration patterns. When the alto re-enters, it is with the final bit of text. For he watches over us day after day. God has done all things well. Initially, the mood seems surprisingly uncertain for watching over us day after day. We begin in A minor, and there are brief melismas on the word all again. But eventually, we do make our way back to F major, and the confident mood returns, along with motives from the first alto statement. The organ provides a brief postscript, quoting its familiar fanfare-like motives mixed with repeated figuration patterns in 16th notes to take us to the end of the movement. We're going to deal with the second part of the cantata more briefly. It begins in D minor again with a presto sinfonia in 3-8 time, a movement very recognizable as a possible finale in an older concerto. In the first section, the texture is based almost completely on sequentially organized figuration patterns, with little independent contribution by the orchestra other than providing cursory responses to the organ soloist in the opening ritonello, and rhythmic support throughout, especially punctuating downbeats. The situation is only slightly modified in the second section. Here is the first part of the movement without repeat. The recitative that follows has as its text, Almighty God, let me think of you continually, then I can in contentment have you sink down into my soul. Let your sweet ephatha soften my all-too-stiff heart. Ah, only put your finger of grace in my ear, or else I am soon lost. Touch also my tongue with the Almighty hand, so that I may praise these signs of wonder in sacred devotion and show that I am your heir and child. 
Box setting is reasonably conventional here, but as usual, certain words and phrases are singled out for special harmonic treatment, in this case the reference to signs of wonder. We'll move on now to the final aria in C major and 3-8 time. Final because there is no closing chorale here, as one might expect. The first part of the text is, I wish to live only with God. Ah, how I wish that it were already the time to raise a joyful alleluia with all the angels. My dearest Jesus, set me free from the yoke of suffering, full of lamentation, and grant that soon in your hands my life filled with torments may end. The Riccinello takes a generally cheerful stance. The melody and accompanying parts split between the three oboes and violins and viola, much as in the opening movement, with the organist doubling the top voice, and also, as before, providing the continual bass line. There are no real surprises in the melody, which moves tidally if perkily within the standard accompanying chords. Ascending leaps are plentiful in the first three measures, in keeping with the generally joyful nature of the text. As is often the case with Bach's more jovial melodies, he includes some across-the-bar ties to avoid the sense of metric over-regularity. After just four bars, the organ seizes the listener's attention with some rapid 16th note triplets as the orchestra recedes into the background somewhat. Against a variant of the Riccinello played by oboes and strings, the alto soloist begins with its own variant of that melody. The organ's obligato part against it remains as spirited and active as ever, sometimes quoting motives from the Riccinello melody, but generally relying on undulating 16th note triplets as before. Eventually, the alto also embraces the 16th note triplets, when the text refers to raising a joyful hallelujah with all the angels. As you could hear, the Hallelujah passage is followed by a return of the Riccinello section, now in G major. As you could also hear, there are formidable technical demands made on the alto in this movement as well, at least in a handful of extended passages. After this Riccinello, we encounter the second part of the text. My dearest Jesus, set me free from the yoke of suffering, full of lamentation, and grant that soon in your hands my life filled with torments may end. Naturally given the text, we encounter new thematic material, and the prevailing cheerfulness of the first part gives way after a few measures 
to a more angular and even dissonant melody, along with some disruptive and unexpected chromaticism, as the soloist sings of the yoke of suffering, full of lamentation. And in the short run, we seem to be plowing restlessly through the circle of fifths. But all of this somewhat frenzied modulatory activity comes to an end, and we settle into a relatively peaceful F major, where the ritornello returns just as the text predicts that my life filled with torments may end. But after the relatively peaceful ritornello, Bach returns to the same text. And although the setting is a bit different this time, the same dynamic plays out, but this time climaxing with an even more elaborate triplet-based melisma, ascending sequentially on the word end, which is then handed to the organ for its continuation. But while the end may thus be highlighted, the final presentation of the last two lines of text features a long, sustained note on your hands, followed by a rather cheerful final reference to the ritornello theme and our arrival back in C major. The oboe strings and organ then wrap everything up with a final ritornello, and the movement comes to an end. This cantata is certainly in a class by itself, in part because so much of it seems to have been based on pre-existing concerto movements, but it is nevertheless as intriguing a cantata for solo voice as any Bach composed. We'll move on now to BWV 170, the title in translation, Contented Peace. This is the second cantata for solo alto and the first composed for Leipzig, probably in the second cycle. The occasion is the sixth Sunday after Trinity, and the gospel reading for the day is Matthew chapter 5, verses 20 through 26, although the opening aria is based more on the epistle reading for the day, Romans 6, 3 through 11, where he warns against the consequences of sin. The libretto is again by Georg Christian Lems. The text for the opening aria is... Contented peace, beloved delight of the soul, you cannot be found among the sins of hell, but only where there is heavenly harmony. You alone strengthen the weak breast. 
contented peace, beloved delight of the soul. For this reason, nothing but the gifts of virtue should have any place in my heart. The movement is in D major and 12-8 time, and many commentators have referenced its calm pastoral mood. The opening melody, shared by violin one and oboe, and supported harmonically by the other strings and the organ continuo, is one of Bach's greatest, and in fact bears some resemblance to other well-known melodies that Bach based initially on a descending bass line. In and of itself, the melody seems unremarkable and without a clear sense of direction, hovering mostly around the notes of the tonic chord. In fact, if you were to harmonize it in the simplest possible way, remaining on the tonic chord for most of the first two measures, the melody would not sound particularly impressive. Of course, no composer would harmonize the opening measures in this fashion, unless possibly in an attempt to summon up a simple and quite rustic country dance. And this is certainly not Bach's intention, and his harmonization, and particularly his use of the descending bass line below the melody, provides far more interesting results, including some achingly poignant dissonances and yet the overall effect remains calm and reassuring, in part because of the lulling orchestral accompaniment. Bach discontinues the descending bass line after just two bars, and the bass line at that point begins to move up the tonic D major chord while echoing the 16th note motives from the melody. By the fourth measure, Bach has already begun to move away from the key of D major and toward A major which he does by introducing the dominant of A major, it's actually an E major chord, and Bach repeats the root of that chord as a pedal. The melody has become much more active rhythmically at this point as well, with 16th note scale runs and swirling figures now heard in violin one and oboe, but also in the accompanying parts. When the alto enters, it does so with a two-measure phrase based loosely on the first two bars of the ritornello theme, over the same descending continuo bass line. After a single measure from the orchestra drawn from the ritornello, the alto then re-enters with another variant of the same theme, and this time continues on, coming to a sustained note on the word ru or rest on the dominant, as the descending bass line then shifts up a fifth. 
It's all wonderfully calm and peaceful. But the sense of peaceful tranquility begins to change somewhat when we arrive at the setting for the next part of the text. You cannot be found among the sins of hell, but only where there is heavenly harmony. You alone strengthen the weak breast, contented peace, beloved delight of the soul. We move to C-sharp minor for these more sobering thoughts, but the orchestra continues to make use of ritronello motives and the descending bass line returns at the reference to heavenly harmony. And by the time we have arrived at the last line, contented peace, beloved delight of the soul, we have arrived securely back at the ritonello, although now in the key of A major. The final bit of text, for this reason nothing but the gifts of virtue should have any place in my heart, is initially treated a little more somberly, with more brief visits to minor keys. But the altos part, which continues to draw partially from the ritronello motives, is no less gorgeous than before. In the end, we make our way back to D major for the final recurrence of the extraordinary ritronello theme. The recitative which follows states, The world, that place of sin, bursts out only in hellish songs and strives through hatred and envy to bear upon itself the image of Satan. Its mouth is full of snake's venom that often deals a mortal blow to the innocent and only wants to say, Raka, you worthless person. Most just God, how far are people therefore estranged from you, your love? But their mouth proclaims curses and enmity, and they only want to tread their neighbors underfoot. Ah, it is difficult to gain pardon for such guilt through prayer. 
It's a dramatic text, especially the first part, and it's set dramatically, with a number of diminished chords and large and angular ascending leaps, including tritones or augmented fourths, in the continual bass line. The movement begins in B minor, but quickly starts searching for other key areas. Here is the first part of the recitative. This is followed by an aria in F-sharp minor and marked Adagio. The text is, How sorry I feel, therefore, for those perverted hearts that against you, my God, are so set. I truly shudder and feel a thousand pangs when they take delight only in vengeance and hatred. Most just God, what must you then think when with their truly satanic intrigues they so insolently deride your strict commands about punishment. Ah, without doubt you have thought, how sorry I feel therefore for those perverted hearts. It's a somewhat grim setting for a rather grim text, with an unusually sparse texture that contrasts powerfully with that heard in the first aria. An obligato organ part again plays a major role, accompanied only by violins and viola in unison, which frequently repeat sighing or weeping figures in a descending pattern. Here are the opening bars. The alto enters with a melodic line that does not directly quote the opening ritornello melody, but continually draws motives and phrasing patterns from it. The texture remains sparse, especially at first, with the alto accompanied only by unison strings. After two bars, the organ right hand enters with a reference to the opening ritornello theme, and the texture becomes busier. As the text changes to I truly shudder and feel a thousand pangs. The alto duplicates the sighing motives heard earlier in the accompaniment, and the melody broadens out considerably with longer note values at the words a thousand pangs. Then, when reaching the text, when they take delight only in vengeance and hatred, the alto engages in a long and ambitious melisma in 64th notes, accompanied at times by similar phrases from the organ.
From this point on, the mood is surprisingly consistent. Not surprising given the text, but surprising because Bach will usually introduce more clearly contrasting sections in such a long aria. But although we touch upon various keys along the way, occasionally major keys, the repeated descending sighing figures in the strings, which are sometimes duplicated in the alto part, in combination with the often thorny chromaticism in the organ accompaniment, guarantee that the austere effect is virtually unrelenting from beginning to end. The recitative that follows employs the text, who in these circumstances would wish to live here at all, when only hate and misfortune are seen in place of God's love. But since also my enemy, as if he were my best friend, should be loved by me according to God's commandment, then there depart from my heart anger and resentment, and my wish is to live for God alone, who is love itself. Ah, spirit filled with harmony, when will the promised land of heaven be given to you? It is indeed a harmonious setting for the most part, scored for strings and continuo, with only brief hints of tension, as for example to underline the early reference to hate and misfortune. Obvious word-painting gestures are otherwise rare, although we do encounter one quick melismatic flurry as the text refers to anger and resentment departing as if flying away. Here's the first part of the recitative. In the final aria, Lems pursues a familiar line of argument. I feel revulsion to prolong my life, and so take me away from here, Jesus. I am horrified by all the sins. Grant that I may find this place to live, where I myself may be at peace. But there is not much of either horror or revulsion in Bach's setting. Instead, we hear a wonderfully perky, rhythmically compelling theme introduced in the Ritonello. It's in D major, but it takes its time revealing that fact. There's a quick pickup note on the tonic, but the following chords seem more bent on A major than D major, and we don't hear an emphatic cadence on D until the eighth measure. Here is the opening Ritonello, which introduces its two main melodic ideas in bars 1 and 2 and 3 and 4, respectively each of them saturated with rhythmic energy. As you will have noticed, the organist is far from idle here. It begins by simply doubling the first violin's melody, 
but is soon heard constantly filling in phrase gaps with mostly sixteenth-note flurries of scale fragments, turns, and neighbor-tone figures. When the alto enters, we hear only the first bar of the ritonello theme before the organ jumps in to finish off the phrase. But after two bars, the alto returns and begins again, not exactly quoting the ritonello theme, but constantly drawing from it, especially the first measure, which is repeated sequentially, and the third measure, even as the first violins and organ continue to do the same in their accompaniment. This is another de capo aria, and so when the second part of the text is introduced, I am horrified by all the sins, grant that I may find this place to live where I myself may be at peace, the mood changes, becoming more somber, even as some of the same or similar rhythmic figures continue to be used, and the obligato organ part plays much the same role here as it did in the first section. We quickly move to B minor and then F sharp minor. No extraordinary musical device is used to depict the horror of all the sins, and Bach here has made no attempt to recreate the stark austerity of the second aria. The most extraordinary gesture is in fact the long melisma near the close of the section at the reference to being at peace. Then, of course, we follow the de capo sign and return to the first part of the aria. This is an impressive cantata in many respects. It would stand as one of Bach's greatest on the merits of the first movement alone, but the emotional range demonstrated by the three arias, especially the movement from the delightful tranquility of the first to the dark austerity of the second, places it in a category of its own. So both of these alto cantatas turn out to be very unique works, albeit for very different reasons. The solo cantatas, these and others, 
have sometimes failed to attract as much attention as the more grandiose cantatas composed for full choral and orchestral resources. But on their own, more limited terms, they can be every bit as fascinating. For the next episode, we'll look at part three of Bach's keyboard practice, Bach's first published organ music, often dubiously described as Bach's organ mass, known for the opening prelude and closing St. Anne or Trinity Fugue and a number of his most outstanding chorale preludes.